You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Hi, I'm Deb Seminary, and I'm sitting here with my husband, Mike, the host of Mike Seminary and Friends. It's been a little over a year since he started these podcasts, and I kind of want to know, Mike, how's it going? It's been over a year? Oh, my Lord, it's gone so fast. I'm having so much fun, and thanks to you, I wouldn't be doing it. Well, I'm certainly glad that I came up with the idea. It has been keeping you busy and occupied and not bothering me too much. So. And I've paid you a boatload of money for all the work you're doing, haven't I? Oh, yeah. Yep. I okay, really so I cook meals. I appreciate that. Um, but let's talk about the guests. You've had some really cool guests. You talk to musicians. You've even had musicians play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, some authors. Uh, you- Entrepreneurs. People I've never met, I, one way or another, another stumble into them, and I've and I've learned a lot. I've never read so much in preparing, uh, preparing for who I'm going to interview, and it's been a gas. Research is important, isn't it? It is. Yep, and I'm really glad that you just don't use Wikipedia, and that's the only thing. I'm glad you really died. What's Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I read a lot. I mark up books. I buy too many books. Eh, maybe not too many. It's okay. You're retired. You don't have anything else to do. And so, who are you going to have on this week? I don't know. Let's listen and find out. Okay. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Gotcha. Today, I'm so honored to have as my guest a young smart, talented, and incredibly accomplished individual with a pretty remarkable bio, by the way. And boy, oh boy, her future is incredibly bright. Currently, she is serving as commissioner of North Dakota's Department of Labor and Human Rights, the youngest person to ever hold a state cabinet office. If I'm wrong, I'm going to have her correct me on that. Erica Thunder, Dana Hook, Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Thank you for taking time to join me. It's great to see you. How are you? Thank you so much. Mogsy um, Dogs, thank you. Pina Gigi, all of the thank yous to you for having me on. And you're right. Yeah, Dana, Lady of the Lake, thank you so much for adding that too. And I'm well. How are you? I'm really, really good. Explain Dana Hook. Explain that again. And I butchered it. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Explain that. Oh, no, you're fine. You're more than fine. Okay. Um, at Dehinuk, um, so, I mean, quite literally, if we were to take the phrase in its most, like, crass form, it means lake woman. But how it was gifted to me, which is how spiritual names are given to someone, it's a gift, you know, and it, it's an entire ceremony, at least through what I've gone through. Um, I was given it later in life. Some people are born and receive it within a couple of weeks of life. I was already in my 20s when I received it. Um, but it quite literally, as I said, means uh, it means lake woman, but how it is referred to for me is lady of the lake, which really um, is a reflection of my entire background, and that's why it was given to me in that way of being someone 
whose family came from Elba Woods, North Dakota, which we've talked a little bit about, but we'll talk more, I'm sure. Yes, we will. For sure. And I'm even wearing earrings of my great grandma, um, Corn Mother Comes, here, just even for making sure that she and others would be with me today. Um, but it really was uh, a bittersweet name that was given to reflect um, Elbow Woods, North Dakota, the village where my family comes from, and is now under Lake Sakakawea. In case some folks don't understand that full history, I certainly can speak more to that. But really with the Garrison Dam diversion, I mean, this beautiful, I think even Governor had spoke about it in his um, recent State of the State address. He had talked about how that dam diversion had uh, really changed our own like really beautiful agricultural areas and things like that. And Hold on a second, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Some people could also say that dam diversion too. Just Oh, you're right, because even behind <laughs> me, I have a book called Damned Indians. So yeah. you're right, because um, we're not the only tribe that experienced this kind of thing. In fact, I've talked a lot recently with some uh, Washington tribes that had had really eerily similar things where like my tribe where we've got three combined into one out of survival purposes. I've talked with tribes like um, the Colville um, Confederated Tribes out of Washington, which is an amazing tribe. They've got 12 bands made into one and the Grand Coulee out there um, had been the damn diversion that had really taken away, you know, so much of, of, of what they were able to do as um, their own economic development. But to get back to, you know, where I come from with the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Rikaran, again, I'm mostly Hidatsa, also Rikara. I'm not Mandan at all, but shout out to my fellow Mandan friends out there. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we really, you know, there was a lot that happened all at once. Um, you know, this, this land was so quickly flooded and however you want to look at it, um, I would say, you know, taken away so quickly that, you know, homes and all of these like priceless things and objects really weren't even allowed to be saved. And um, it was a quick adjustment. And then you have that in combination with my family, where at the same point, you know, I'd had, you know, grandparents uh, kinship wise um, and literally uh, in the westernized ways, my grandma who had gone to boarding school before that, so they weren't even around for some of these things. And a lot of ways were lost throughout all of it. Um, so that's the bitter part of the sweet thing that is, it was such a beautiful area. I also grew up in the Turtle Mountains and I grew up on Lake Minagoshi and that's where my mom currently lives. That's where my grandma later moved to in her life. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's really friends with the Anishinaabe and the Métis and the Ojibwa or Ojibwe, depending on which state you're coming from, or the Chippewa, depending on how you want to refer to that tribe. And they've been such great friends to us. And my mom taught music in 
and around uh, the Turner Mountain Reservation for over 35 plus years. So I really had the great blessing of being on all of these beautiful bodies of water. Um, and that's a really long way of explaining this name. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's pause there for a second because that's a perfect segue to a question I should have asked a couple minutes ago. And, and you know, for those that are listening, uh, Erica is a proud Arikara, and that's a woman, if you didn't pick up on that. When you said your uh, spiritual name, spirit name, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, it can mean a bunch of different things. Um, so, like, my father-in-law, who is now past, um, my I guess I can say this, because um, this is certainly, I don't feel out of place saying this, but my husband lost both of his parents by the time he was in third grade, so his grandfather raised him. So Levi Thunder was, was his grandfather, his choka in, in their Ho-Chunk language. He was my father-in-law, because he raised Dash, my husband. Um, they, he would always say, this is your Indian name, you know, <laughs> which maybe, you know, like maybe we shouldn't use that term, but spiritual name is really the better way of saying it because it really is the call back to everyone. Like, I think the theme of this conversation is and will be is the call back to everyone who came before me and really is, you know, I'm here because of all of them and the spiritual part of it is the belief that they're always with me, literally next to me all of the time. And this name makes sense for where I'm at and how I was born into this world at this certain time and have gone through this lineage before me. Thank you. We, we could jump all over the place. We could have so many conversations yeah. and we have so many connections as well. Yeah. But, but let's, let's start first with, with this question. What caused you as uh, a student at Botno High School, if that's when it happened, what caused you to decide, I'm going to go to law school? Yeah. What a great question. Even the way you worded that, because I don't think I've ever heard it worded that way, of me being at Botno High School. Because that's, I think, where it really happened. But honestly, you know, let's just get it out of the way, because I'm going to get choked up no matter what. Um, I'm, I'm a sensitive and emotional person. I think I wear that on my sleeve. But I lost my dad, he was killed in a car accident when I was in high school, I was 16. Right in the middle part, literally the first day of my junior year of high school was his funeral, you know, so it was right in the middle. Um, I had had um, the great pleasure and honor of knowing my own family on my mom's side. And then also having my dad around too, where, um, he could see certain things about me, about my writing and other skills um, that I had had. You know, he had been um, a college athlete, um, 
Maybe it'll make some people happy to know that he went to NDSU. <laughs> I don't know. I went to UND. So, um, and then my mom went to MSU, Minot State, um, and she literally was a musical prodigy. I think that that should be said as well. She had been a savant. She's going to be so embarrassed. I'm like, sorry, mom, but it's true. Um, we all know it. Um, and then became a music teacher. And, um, but yeah, my dad had saw some things about me and I think my mom did too. And so did a couple of other people who at that time, when I was making decisions at 14, 15, you know, going into this place of trying to decide where I was going to go and everything else for, for college. Cause that was always going to be a part of my life. Always. Um, I came from educators. I came from public servants. I knew I was going to be a public servant. That was my dream. My grandma, Adeline, my mom's mom, so this is again a Rick Rahadatsa, had said, you know, I know that everyone has talked to you about law. You should really look into Indian law. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I have to say, I had zero idea. And I think that that's the reaction of most people. What even is that? What's Indian law and policy? And just to answer before we even get there, it really is a law that interfaces with every other law, but with jurisdictional differences and with case precedent that's a little bit different. I mean, to just break it down simply. But yeah, I mean, it was really my grandma's words, my grandma Adeline's words saying that to me where, of course, I have something in me that is like, if I don't know about something, I need to know more about it. And then when I went to, I really, after my dad died, I followed my brother, Evan. I have an older brother named Evan. I followed him to UND because I, I didn't know where to go and I just wanted to be around family, you know? That's where I'm going to get choked up. Sorry, Mike. It's okay. It's okay. I didn't know that was going to hit me so hard today. Sorry about that. Um, Take your time. It, you know, it may be because you lost your father and here you are, you're talking to an old fart on, <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe you know exactly oh, what is needed at these points. <laughs> that's and while you're gathering yourself, I just want you to know, I, I, you just gave me a whole bunch of ideas for more podcasts. Is your mother living, by the way? Yes, yeah. We're, we're a musical family. I'd love to get your mom on to talk about oh music. Oh, my God. I went to UND two years. My wife went to NDSU. Oldest daughter started at NDSU, graduated from UND. The youngest one just graduated from NDSU a year ago. We, oh, congrats, and, everyone. And my oh. wife started at Minot State. She's incredibly musical. So we have all oh. sorts of stuff we could talk about. Oh, we do then. Okay. <laughs> You're bringing me back. Thanks for doing that. You're and um Yeah, we do. We definitely do. And yeah, sorry, mom. I'm signing you up for a podcast. <laughs> but she really is something special. And when I go back to Turtle Mountain, it's like I don't know, I feel like I'm in a parade when I go up there because there's generations of parents, students, children, you know, like three or four generations who all know who she was and were very much touched by her. You know, it's, 
You know, just you, yeah. as you were talking about the Indian law and the people that suggested yeah. that you should pursue that, and you'll go back to that, th this question came to me. And a lot of folks might not understand this, that yeah. um, tribes, or yeah. at least, uh, I don't know if the technical term is the tribe or the reservation, are sovereign nations. Pardon? Tribal nations. Tribal, yeah. they're sovereign nations. And yep. their their chairman is the equivalent of a president for all practical purposes. Yes. So when you decided to study Indian law as you were going to law school and you got your certificate yeah. in Indian law, did yes. you study a lot about how that interaction, which is sometimes very confusing, especially for white yeah. people, about that, that intersection or crossroads between no, uh, state law, American law, federal law, and then Indian law, because that must be some, must be complex. Yeah. Yeah. And it is for everyone, I have to say. It doesn't matter race, color, national, or it's, that's actually a major point that I had written down ahead of this, is that, like, we, you know, as, as tribal citizens, I think the hardest part for us as far as, even conveying some of our issues and things like that historically has been that um, it's been hard at times to be able to know exactly what some of them are. And I don't mean to infantilize us or say that we're non-intelligent. I just mean to say that we didn't have the chance at having attorneys that specialized in this area. So you're exactly right. It's a very complex area of law. And before I got emotional, I did follow my brother um, to UND uh, for my undergrad, which was uh, political science, pretty typical for background to law school. And UND Law had a great um, Indian law program. And I should say, you know, certificate is a word that's used a lot at the law school level of things. Like UND also had an aviation certificate at the same time. But it really is seen as, you know, either a second degree or a major by how much time and uh, the credits and everything else that you have to put into it. So I really, it's not even like a specialization. It's like I have a Juris Doctorate and an Indian Law, I would say, degree. And I think that anyone else who has done the same probably would agree with that. Um, it's just a matter of semantics. Um, and yes, it, it does point back to my grandma, but I took Indian gaming courses, which thank you, Dr. Stephen Light, Catherine Rand, and several other people in my underlaw or undergrad, um, where I was, this is where it comes in, where it doesn't matter what your background is. I was taught the basics of all of the jurisdictional complexities and I saw this like red tape and you know the bureaucracy of IGRA, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988. And I was it was set up in a way where my professor, Stephen Light, had we it was very much a law school kind of class where we had the case law books in front of us. He used the Socratic method of questioning us, you know, out of the blue of, you know, what was this part of the case or whatever else. And it absolutely struck me in a way that nothing ever has intellectually in that way, where I was like, 
This is the most interesting thing because it's complex. There are so many issues that still need to be resolved. It's an area where not a lot of people work in or maybe are even attracted to, which is surprising to me because a lot of us are really intrigued by the what ifs and whys and hows and everything else. And I fell in love immediately from that Indian gaming course. And I knew it all made sense. My grandma had already passed by that time, but it all made sense of Indian law. And I knew I was gonna specialize in it. After UND, graduating from UND, you yeah. were at MHA first before you went to Wisconsin as a staff attorney, yes. right? Yes. How long were you at MHA before you moved to Wisconsin? So I should back it up a little bit. While I was in law school, I had the great honor of working for Judge B.J. Jones. And um, I don't know what she might go by, but I'll call her Judge um, Michelle Rivard Parks. They were both professors with UND, have worked all over Indian country. Um, we worked with, there's 574 federally recognized um, tribes in the United States and 60 plus state recognized tribes. Um, we had worked with I don't even know how many, but a very large percentage of tribes across the United States while I was still in law school clerking for them on a bunch of different issues, a lot of, you know, election issues, employment issues, um, you know, I would say things that tied to housing, which is human rights directly, a lot of things that would come up then now later here with what I'm doing. And um, it was some of the best experiences that I had had. And I also was able to network with a lot of future attorneys who have gone on to do all sorts of things, whether they practice law or not. Um, but yes, I, had, um, I did volunteer for a little bit unpaid, but we don't need to get into that, with my tribe to clean up codes and, and, and other things, which is very true for a lot of um, tribes who had constitutions that were established really without maybe necessarily their permission or without even the understanding of the language. And so there's still a lot of cleanup to be done because it didn't apply. I mean, think of any local place that you live in and something is just like, pushed on you and it doesn't apply to you, you want to clean that up. Um, but yes, uh, right out of law school, immediately that was the whole plan the whole time was to go to my tribe. And, and I served as a staff attorney at the height of the oil boom. And I really was hired for property contracts, uh, leasing, realty, all of these things that I thought I was going to specialize in. But in the end, yes, I did all of that. I, there was such a large caseload of child welfare cases. Okay, so you're, so you're at MHA. How did you end up going to Wisconsin? Well, my husband, quite simply. I had been recruited by Ho-Chunk Nation even before I had started with MHA oh. um, as an intern, which I had turned down um, so that I could go to MHA because I really thought, I would be there for quite some time. I didn't know that I was going to meet my husband at the very end of law school and that, you know, 
we were going to meet and that was going to be the end of that. You know, like, however they say that, you know, you meet and the rest is history. Destiny. It's basically. destiny. Destiny, exactly. And um, so, yeah, um, he he had finished up his degree. He I had met him at UND. Um, he was not in law, which I loved, I have to say. Um, he was in healthcare, and I really loved what he was doing, and I, I loved who he was as a person and so many other things. And he, he was one of the most incredible people I'd ever met in my life, and he also reminded me a lot of, like, you know, my dad, you know, the people that I loved the most in my life, you know, and uh, was such just the kindest person. And anyway... Um, He's going to be embarrassed if he hears this now. Because um, everyone I'm talking about is so humble <laughs> that me bragging about them, they're going to be like, stop. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I had been recruited. But of course, I had to go through the hiring process. And I, again, was very honored. I was able to work for um, the the trial court of Ho-Chunk Nation, which, by the way, this is a really important point because... I think this is this uh, is new knowledge for a lot of people. Ho Chunk Nation is the sister tribe of the Winnebago tribe in Nebraska. Literally the same blood, same people. The Ho Chunk Nation bought back their lands, their original lands in Wisconsin, and took back their original name, which was People of the Big Voice. Um, so we've got a totally different situation going on here with the Ho-Chunk Nation, they've got four branches of government, different than any tribe that I had ever worked with, and they were a non-reservation tribe. I think that's really important to point out to a lot of people who assume that all 574 federally recognized tribes are all uh, reservation tribes. They're not. I'm not saying that one is better than the next, either way, but it's there's a there's a separation and difference, and you know, whether you're a tribal citizen or not, to say you grew up on a reservation or not makes you more this or that, more native or not, it's really hurtful to the non-reservation tribes, I would say, more than anything. Because, um, you know, someone like my husband, he grew up in a really tiny town that's even considered a village by population standards in Wisconsin but was so connected, speaks fluent Ho-Chunk, and that's why I speak more Ho-Chunk than anything else. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, and what I learned from their tribe was, you know, so many things that applied back to my tribe as well. We have a lot of similarities, I would say, even our language, we come from the same type of languages, um, but even our kinship systems are somewhat similar. Our, practices and certain numbers that are important to us are similar, which is very interesting, but shouldn't be surprising because we are kind of like Central Plains, Midwest tribes, etc. But going there was one of the best things that could have happened to me working for their chief judge and the associate judges. And then anytime that an, uh, you know, an appeal would come up, being able to clerk for, you know, their Supreme Court was really just just the biggest honor and blessing. And then, um, I don't know how else to say this, but I guess I was stolen by um, their Department of uh, Social Services to spearhead 
a program in child welfare because I didn't even know it, but I was becoming kind of a specialist in child welfare. And I, if you would have known me in law school, I would have said to you, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, it's just too much that kind of felt too close, you know, one of those things. Um, but anyway, uh, they asked me to spearhead a, a, a wraparound program, coordinated services team for uh, the youth of the Ho-Chunk Nation to be able to have, you know, this whole, they were able to apply for it if they were either in one of two things or both. And the North Dakota folks out there will understand this if they worked in any of this. They were either in child welfare or juvenile justice or both, which is dual status. Which is funny because then later when I came back to North Dakota, I would work with dual status youth and bringing up programs with Lisa Beergard and plenty of other folks who have worked in our justice systems. So shout out Lisa, hi. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I was so blessed to have done that. I think it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life and it really... You know, it was a it was such a singular position that was grant funded. So, you know, I was overseeing overseeing my own budget. I was doing, you know, everything myself, keeping my caseload myself, etc. I mean, I worked extremely independently, which I was used to from a staff attorney's position, which I suppose is why maybe I was asked to do it. Um, but long story short, my mom had gotten sick. Um, and of course the good news is, is that she's doing very well. We know that because I've said that and she lives up at Lake Metagoshi and, um, she's a grandma now. My brother has uh, our first little, my first little niece on that side. Um, I've got lots of nieces and nieces and nephews on my husband's side, but first one on, on that. But um, she'd gotten very sick and she had been at Rochester Mayo when I was still in the Black River Falls, Eau Claire, Wisconsin region, which wasn't that far of a drive. So I could see her often. She could also be with us. You know, it was it was a good thing um, in that way. And um, but I was homesick. I was very homesick for North Dakota and knowing that she was getting better and was going to come back and go back to Lake Minigoshi put a fire inside of me of just like, I really want to be back in North Dakota. I don't know what that's going to look like. Well, turns out, little did I know, you know, Scott Davis was going to post a position for a judicial systems administrator, which had been held by all these people that I revered, you know, attorneys that were just amazing and still working for like Aaron Shanley is someone who's an example of a huge hero of mine. She still works, um, to my knowledge, um, as the general counsel for Standing Rock. And um, she's tremendous. She's brilliant. And she had previously served in that role. So I saw it. I applied, came back to North Dakota to interview. I was in the parking lot with my husband. I was a little bit emotional about everything. My phone was off, and the whole time they were calling me to offer the job. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, like how silly. I think that's probably a life lesson there of just like, you know, you don't need to cry or like nothing or spilled milk. You know, like someone might be calling you to 
let you know you're getting a job that you But before you go you on, really let me ask want. you a question because where I wanted to go was and that's where I met you. I met you when you were working with Scott right. Davis at the North that's Dakota right. Indian Affairs Commission. And yeah. my my question was going to be those stops in between after graduating yeah. from law school yeah. and that body of work you were involved in, it appears yeah. to me not it not only did it tee you up very well to work with Scott, yeah. but also in the job that you have now being appointed uh, by Governor Burgum as the uh, Commissioner of Department of Labor and Human Rights. It seems to me that you Correct. you were teed up perfectly because your background. Absolutely correct. I feel the exact same way. I could not have done any position that I did without the one before it. And I needed each one along the way to be to where I am now. And yeah, Indian Affairs was a huge piece of that as well. Because when I was hired, this was before governor had been elected even. This was you know, late 2016. Um, and then when I officially started, I think it was a couple weeks later, he had been um, officially inaugurated or something. I don't it's like it was something really close in those dates. But yeah, I would have not been able to sit down at our first meeting with governor that he had with our entire small group, small but mighty, as we always said, with Indian Affairs, all four of us, <laughs> um, to be able to say, like, look, um, I think this is what we can do about memorandums of understanding and memorandums of agreement. And it was kind of the first time that I felt like it had been heard, those terms. And, you know, I was able to say, look, I, I did these with Ho-Chunk Nation where it was non-reservation. We were working with counties, states, you know, law enforcement, education, you name it. And we were able to do this. It's not impossible. And, um, you know, I felt like in that very moment, um, both governor and then his previous, what I would call chief of staff, or I guess maybe his head of policy, Levi Bachmeyer has now gone on to really great things. But I owe a lot to Levi as well, because he was just he saw, he also, he had worked for Pine Ridge. Right. I don't know if many people yeah, know that. Did. I mean, like, yeah, he had done some really big things at, you know, places where they don't just accept anyone. Like, he, he really did a great job. Um, but they, so Governor Levi, I think Leslie Oliver, too, was there. And Jody Uecker was likely there. You know, a lot of these people are, have retired or have, you know, gone on. Um, to different careers, but um, something about that clicked and it made a lot of sense. And that I felt like started off a really good relationship from the beginning, which I don't even mean to do. It just worked out that way. And then I stayed with Indian Affairs as the judicial systems administrator for a number of years and then had been approached about applying for the um, labor and human rights position by uh, the same people I had mentioned, but also uh, a woman by the name of Chris Thompson, who had been kind of on like a like sabbatical work from Microsoft, and she had been our I'm gonna get her title wrong, but she had she had been with us uh, in uh, like a chief people officer type of position, 
maybe maybe director of education and leadership. I'm not sure. Sorry, Chris. I don't know. Um, but she was really the one that encouraged me to to apply because again, this governor wasn't just handing out appointments. Um, and so seven interviews later, uh, the end of it with my last interview with governor, when he had laryngitis <laughs> and he offered me, um, he was, what was he eating a dilly bar and he offered me one and I was very nervous. So I said, no, so sorry, governor. I, I will always accept a dilly bar from now on. But anyway, this was back in 2019. And yeah, then I got the call from Jody Uecker that um, that I was uh, picked and, you know, would I accept. And it was a really easy answer. And I remember talking about it with Scott, too. Um, Hold on a second. And I remember him. People, people need to know something about you. And I'm going to use a former colleague of yours as a point of reference. Oh, you you okay. took over for Michelle Comer. And yes. Michelle Comer at the time was serving two roles. She was at yes. Commerce Department and at uh, Labor and Human Rights. Yes. And job and service, job, I have to say. And then you, for a while, were wearing two yeah. hats as well at the Indian Affairs yeah. Commission and the yeah. Department of Labor, right? Yeah. But you're Plus you're the yeah yes the commission yes, but you're the only Native American in the history of the state of North Dakota to have that distinguish. That's you're the only person that, to to have that uh, experience, correct? As far as I know, yeah, I, th I think so. I'm pretty sure. To my knowledge. Yeah, to my knowledge and to everyone that I've spoken with, because I don't do much media, you know, like labor and human rights, we're supposed to be a neutral law enforcement agency, which now we can get into now that I've finally gotten to this okay. place that you've teamed up to. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, like I chose not to do much media at all because um, I knew that this position was not supposed to be that way. Um, but this was a perfect fit, obviously. And we're talking about even bigger picture things outside of just even this role. So I felt honored and very comfortable speaking about that. But yes, you're completely right. Michelle took on three different roles at once, which is like unheard of. And she was incredible. And I, have nothing but sincere gratitude to her because I'm sure, because I don't know, but I'm sure she had something to do along the way with my seven interviews um, with her encouraging to hire me. Kind of a three-part thing. Explain to us what exactly, as commissioner at Department of Labor and Human Rights, what do you do, number one? N number two... After you answer that, I'm going to go back to a map that I'm assuming is still on the wall at the Indian Affairs yeah. Commission office and use that to talk about Elbowoods. So what is it exactly that you do? Okay, so what exactly I do as commissioner, just to start off with, to make this even more confusing, Mike, is 
many different things and it changes day by day. But legally, what I'm required to do and the department is required to do is to be able to enforce the laws of both labor, which includes employment law, and then more specifically under that, our wage and hour division um, of laws. So, for example, if someone were to have a claim that they weren't paid their last paycheck, because that's one of our biggest claims that we receive on the wage claim front, whether they were fired, uh, you know, let go, whatever term you want to use, or left, they didn't receive their last one, we are able to collect that for them. Or, I mean, there's a lot of other things along the way. It's, you know, we're neutral for a reason. That's one example for an employee. We can be the exact same for the employer on the other side of things. That's more of the labor end on a very simplistic, very easy level. Um, on the human rights end, it can be quite diverse and complicated, but I would say overall, to put it simply, I think that most people know us as a place under human rights to go to us for fair housing under the fair housing laws at the federal and state level. We have the North Dakota Human Rights Act that we also have to follow. So we follow both fed and state law. We have to. I mean, that's what guides us. We, we can't be making up things as we go. This is very much black and white law and case precedent and circuit precedent law. Um, and of course, more than anything that, uh, you know, trumps all is Supreme Court law, which is a big part of some major decisions we made regarding sex as a protected category, which I'll get into. Um, but, um, most people think of us on the human rights side of things as, as someone that they can go to on fair housing on any side of it, whether you're a landlord, um, or tenant, um, property owner or someone dwelling in the property. Um, we're able to, um, conciliate disputes. We're able to, you know, either find merit or not find merit, you have to be able to meet prima facie evidence, first of all, to be able to get through. And you have to have standing as well. That's number one. Um, and so we have that. But then also our other human rights include, you know, violations in the public service or public accommodations arena. And so like, if a restaurant has a bathroom that isn't ADA, um, you know, uh, disability uh, compliant, then we go in, we literally are investigators, which make it the body of our team, which is a small team. They will go in and literally measure out things to be able to find out if this is true or not, take pictures. We also work with two federal partners we work with the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and HUD with work share agreements. We take on a lot of their cases in this jurisdiction. We don't have jurisdiction over tribal nations, by the way. Um, but of all over North Dakota, outside of that, yes, we do. And um, we take on those cases um, just like we take on anything else that is an intake for us. And... You know, if a, if a company goes um, bankrupt, 
it's still with us. We wait on the proceedings until it's finished. Um, uh, probably like a lot of other agencies, you know, our direct attorneys are through the attorney general's office. We have to rely on them a lot. So shout out to them. And also, you know, obviously it's, it's sad. Rest in peace to Wayne. Yeah. You know, by the way, I have a question before I forget it. I'm at the age where I will do that. When you said you don't have jurisdiction over tribal nations, right? What, what do the tribal nations do if they have concerns in those areas? Where do they go? To their own. To, to their okay. own. Yeah, to their own governance um, and whatever that structure might be. And by the way, just as a... Um, now, of course, I'm forgetting the proper word, but I guess a, a caveat would be the right way to put it. We do have jurisdiction over any public school district. So like White Shield Public School District, we have jurisdiction over if there are concerns about employment or something like that because their funding is public, even if some of it comes from the Bureau of Indian of Education, BIE. Mm-hmm. Quick question before I forget. So, and that, so yeah. you said earlier that um, if there's not, if somebody isn't happy with a decision made in uh, your department, they can always go to the Supreme Court, for example. I'm paraphrasing how you said that. Let's use it sure. as a, an ind- individual tribal nation. Let's use Sisitnuap and Oyate. So if they don't, if there's something that is taking place uh on that reservation, there's a complaint yep. filed, and they don't like the outcome. Is there another place they can go after that decision? Yeah, so I kind of have to correct you a little bit, because the only thing that Sisseton Wapiton has here in North Dakota would be their casino, which we wouldn't have jurisdiction oh, over. Oh, okay. So... We can't even do anything on that one. How about another? How about Spirit Lake? Sure. Yeah. Spirit Lake, if we had something where... So the question was if jurisdiction was to be with us. Say that again. If if somebody went to um, the the court or or, or the equivalent of your department at uh, Spirit Lake... And they didn't like the outcome. Oh. Is there is there a place they can go to after that? Yeah, it depends on what the situation okay. is, and um, that is the complexity of Indian law. Because now we're talking civil. Criminal is much easier, I have to say, because if we're talking about major crimes, that automatically goes to the feds in a lot of cases. Um, Civil is much harder, and I've had to deal with some of those situations. Um, but yeah, usually I have to refer on to feds or state court. Um, it just really depends on the scenario and who's involved, and is it a non-Indian versus a, 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 an indi- indigenous citizen? You know, like there, even that changes things about who is like the who, you know, um, but it's, it's, those questions are asked on certain areas of 
the bar, I have to say, those exact questions. So you should write a question for the South Dakota bar specifically asks Indian law questions. Okay, I'm going to go back to, before I forget. Yeah. When you were working with Scott, and, yeah. and of course I've known Scott, and, and Scott Davis, for point of reference, is the former uh, commissioner yes. at Indian Affairs yeah. Commission. There was a map yes. in the conference room. I'll never yeah. forget the first time I was in the conference room with Scott, because we used to meet in his office, and for whatever reason, we met that day in the conference room. And there's yes. this map of the United States. On, yes. on the map, anything that represents land owned, I might be saying this somewhat incorrectly, by tribes or Native Americans is in the color green, I believe. Yes, you're right. And when you look at that map, maybe one fiftieth of the entire of the entire country is in green, yes. maybe one-fiftieth. Yeah. I'll never forget the day we're in, I almost wept thinking, okay, now I want to use that to go to Elbowoods and the decision to flood Elbowoods yeah. and other parts of the state for a dam that started in 1947, I think, somewhere in there. Yeah. You're right. I read a book written by Jeff Kolpak about North Dakota yeah. tough. I should have brought it with me so I could read specifically what I want to talk about. But there was a basketball team in Elbowwood. Yes, there was. That was like maybe the best basketball team in the history of the state. They were absolutely yeah. incredible. And everyone knows in the state of North Dakota, uh, Native American basketball, is the real deal. I grew up watching yeah. Eagle Staff and Fred Lukens, all those guys. That, yeah. that was, and they kill us. But he yeah. talked about yeah. how when that happened, Elbowoods was. I had never heard of Elbowoods. I had never heard of Elbowoods. Here's yeah. my question: Because you have you have history with Elbowoods. Very much. How far underwater is Elbowoods? And did you have relatives, possibly, on this basketball team that Jeff Kolpak referred to as maybe the best ever? That wasn't fair because you, oh. you probably should have done research. But Yeah, I, I was like thinking, who within uh, Game and Fish or someone who could have given me the exact, you know, Someone had, you know, like or Andrea Travenick, she's with the Water Commission. Someone's got to be able to give me the exact depth of everything. I don't know how far Elbow Woods is underwater. I do know this. The land that my whole family shares together, which is kind of unique in and of itself, that we've got a, got a family plot uh, that is used for our graveyard. Um, and to bear, bury those that we love. And my grandma's out there and all my like uncles and aunts and everyone is out there, you know? And, um, but it over, it oversees an area that um, I believe overlooks Elbow Woods as what it was known. So I don't know 
numbers. I don't even know if I want to know, quite frankly. Um, in the end, I'm sure it's probably changed a bunch of times. You have to imagine, I suppose, that the, the number of the depth has changed. Um, the second question of, did I have relatives on this amazing basketball team? Which, by the way, I don't even have the records in front of me. I wasn't ready for this question. This basketball team was beyond words. And, like, they had had a lot of records outside of just the one that they were recently inducted to for the Hall of Honor um, through the Immune Affairs Commission. Um, yes, I had relatives for sure, and I've had even more relatives um, who have been inducted for a bunch of other different things, and relatives who've turned down being inducted, by the way. <laughs> um, but yes, I yes, I have relatives for sure on that basketball team, and it was the sweetest, I don't even want to, it's going to get too emotional. Um but it was the sweetest thing to be able to come up because we got to come up at the end and like, you know, shake their hands. And I like hugged everyone and said, you know, who am I, who I am. And, you know, my, my, um, my great grandmother, Ina Bosha Hall was the great, great granddaughter as she was referred to, um, as, as, uh, as from White Shield. She was White Shield's great-great-granddaughter. She had that honor. And then she and her sister, Margie Brewer, um, also uh, Beauchamp originally, um, they had made history of their own, and now the White Shield school is named after my auntie, or I guess kinship-wise, grandma, Margie Brewer. Mm. Um and now White Shield is doing a tremendous job in these last few years with basketball. So I have to say, like, um, this thing just keeps happening. We are musical. We are athletic. We are intelligent. We are so many things. You don't even have to, like, ask us. We'll just do it, you know? <laughs> So yes, I am related to, to answer that, I am related to quite a few of those boys on that team. And then I was even related to uh, Hall that was a, he had been quite an observed uh, horseman and had done quite a bit of rodeo work as well. Um, uh, he is a, he's a direct relative for sure. Because I come from the Hall family. Well... I'm going to ask you a, a question. If you're so incredibly accomplished, Erica, and you're still so young, and uh, you're doing great things for the state of North Dakota, just broadly, right? If you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of young people and with particular emphasis, Native Americans, that are aspiring yeah. to follow in your footsteps, accomplished policymaker, yeah. attorney, really, really experienced. What's the one thing you'd want them to know? I think I already said it, 
but I, there's a couple more things to say on it. Whatever it is that's asked of us, we can do. But also, more than that, do what you want to do. And you, and you really, you really can be successful. I, like, I tr promise you that. And please trust me on that. Because we're at a point in time in history where this is the right time for all of us. We finally made it here. All of our relatives behind us, again, are right next to us. You can do it. I, I was so privileged to work with um, like the Youth Academy that had been put on by the Indian Affairs Commission. I was so proud of so many of the young people who had taken to being listening into the Supreme Court and their arguments, uh, oral arguments. They were so interested by that. And obviously, you know, like laws, my thing, but there are so many other things that can be done. And I mean, going back to even my own name, we've got a deep reservoir of resources within us. We really do. Um, and I'm just trying to even look through my own notes because I had a couple of notes of like wanting to say that we really are the children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of all of these things, um, that relate to where we deserve respect and are getting it and are now at a point where we have ownership. Yeah. And I think that that's the most important thing for any of them. I hope deeply that they know that because I feel for them. They've got a lot that they've got to still fight against, but I'm so impressed with what I've seen. And I don't know, at the end of the day, I guess if someone like me can do it, you know, I'm so impressed with what I've seen. I, I have the, the most faith and I'll, I'll always be here. And I know that a lot of other people will be here for you. That's what we're supposed to do for you as relatives. We're all, Mark Fox said this, Chairman Mark, Mark Fox said this, we're all related. We are. We're all related. Hey, Eric, I'm going to say so something gonna... and you don't even have to respond and maybe you shouldn't. Um, because as you, we were talking about Elbowoods and I just caught you so off guard with that question, I apologize. I had to, because I couldn't remember all the specifics in the book that Jeff Colpack wrote. And so I quickly yeah. was Googling and I, and I saw the, the interview with Mark Fox, Chairman Fox, with regards to after 60 years, the right decision that was made to recognize the basketball team from Elba Woods. Here's something, if people haven't studied the history well enough, that people need to know and about how primarily through the federal government, we screwed the Native Americans. For whatever reason, a decision was made to start this dam, the series, or the, the whole water system. And Garrison Dam became in existence in 47 or 53, whatever it was, somewhere in there. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, Little, all of it. And yeah. yes, the land that would eventually be flooded was purchased, but at you know, like a penny on the dollar or maybe a nickel. It, we yeah. screwed the Native Americans. And yeah. um, we can't go back and redo that, right? But people need to know, speaking of humble people, and you reference that yourself, Erica, what happened to the Native Americans in the state of North Dakota when we decided to put the garrison dam in? Their life was completely disrupted. The incredible farmland they had, gone. Their cities, gone. They had to relocate. Um, and the land that they relocated to wasn't nearly as productive as what they had historically. So the importance of understanding the Elbowoods story, the Elbowoods basketball team, is more than just about basketball. It's about the incredible history of Native Americans in the state of North Dakota who we ripped away. Um, they're, they're part of their, their, their heritage, their livelihood, um, and you need to know that. I would encourage people, do some, do some research on Elbowoods, North Dakota, and the, the, the Garrison Dam. Yeah, it's great that we have Lake Sakakawi. It's, it's, I understand the water system. I get all that. But in, yeah. to make that happen, and again, Erica, you don't have to say anything. We screwed the Native Americans, period. Well, I think Governor even has said that, <laughs> quite frankly, and how much we didn't benefit North Dakota as a state. We've benefited everyone else down the stream over North Dakota. And may I just say this, because I know you said I didn't have to say anything. I have to shout out my dad once again. I already talked about him. But I didn't say enough. My dad was non-native, just as a reminder to everyone. A farmer came from he was like you know people talk about i was this generation or whatever else i don't really have that on my mom's side because you know we were we were just here <laughs> i don't you know my dad's side you know they escaped persecution from czechoslovakia so i've got like quite a mixed background and i fully understand both sides of all this and i should have said this earlier in this whole conversation um but i it i think the biggest thing that i learned um from my dad's side of the family who shout out to them the wondrosics my maiden name what a consonant full <laughs> like everyone hated it by the way it was the worst but but love to them. Um, it was kind of a made-up name, just by the way. Sorry to my family, but it was. Um, anyway, to my to my Uncle Al and my Aunt Gail and my whole family on that side, you know, um, like I know the struggles that they went through very much. I understand them. And I think that that's, I guess, what makes me be able to understand. And then growing up with a dad who taught me, who came from the, literally their same blood, um, to be able to understand that a lot of bad thing ha things happened. Yes, they were able to educate me. I would say that my dad did most of the education when I was younger of Elbowood's community. Because a lot of people in my family 
weren't ready to talk about it. There was such trauma. You know, we didn't even get into boarding school. Um, it was really, really hard to understand my own background. So I have to really shout out, you know, my dad and my mom and my own family and my dad's side as well, who were so willing to help me understand my own background as an indigenous woman. I have to say they did that as non-tribal people. So I've, I, there is something, there's a lesson to be learned with all of this. And I, you will articulate it likely way more eloquently than I ever could, but there's something so beautiful about the fact that my Wondrosic family, you know, immigrants to this country could get along so well and also help me understand my background as a native indigenous woman as well and respect that. And that both were respected and that I represented both to everyone, you know, and I think that that's really what has pushed me forward as a citizen of the world more than anything is that I accepted me for me, which is really hard. I, I would say that that's another thing I didn't say to the youth yet, but, you know, I've met so many people in my life who were raised by maybe a mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, auntie, aunt, uncle, who are native. And we're taught a lot that you live with one brown foot and one white foot in the world. And I was so incredibly blessed to have had a family that had said, not necessarily that that wasn't untrue because they weren't going to erase that, but that, all of it was accepted. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest message I could give to anyone and that you should feel okay about that. And anyone who, you know, doesn't feel okay about it. Um, I don't know. Maybe I don't have any of the words that's, that's right. Well, Erica, I'm kind of glad we didn't spend too much time on boarding schools and, and that those yeah. subjects because maybe as somebody on the governor's cabinet, you probably we should have that conversation. But I'm going to have probably a guest on that where we can talk about so people can learn about that. Yeah. But here's a real important question: Are you being recognized by some um, nationally known? media source about you by chance? <laughs> how, how coy. <laughs> well, when I think this comes out, by the way, thanks, Mike. You're the sweetest. This is like never happened in my life, but allegedly watch it doesn't happen, but I think it will. I mean, it's done. It's a done deal. But, um, so I always have to look back. Gannett, who is the owner of USA Today and multiple other media sources, including, you know, the AP all around the nation, et cetera, and like Devil's Lake Journal and a bunch of our tribal nation media outlets. Um, yeah, I got the great privilege that's out of control 
um, of being named uh, the North Dakota Woman of the Year for 2021. So it's backdated. Did you just say um, North Dakota Woman of the Year for 2021? Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. That's just awesome. Thanks. Um, well deserved. I don't even... I. It's literally, again, back to everything we talked about. This is for my mom, my grandmas, and every female above me. I wouldn't be here without them, literally, but even figuratively in how I exist and, you know, everything else. It's, it's, words can't explain the whole thing in general. And I'm so blessed and, and, um, Alleged, well, I've looked at it. You can, I think you can Google USA Today Women of the Year or Century. They started this in 2020. So they had picked a lot of women, 10 from each state, uh, and others a lot that you would recognize um, for the listeners out there. And then now they've done this new thing where they're doing Women of the Year where they get they get 40 candidates they break it down then i don't even know who the voting body is i still don't know which is crazy to me that i don't <laughs> but i just got the email that i was chosen and then i did an interview and by the time this comes out it should also be published so well congratulations erica and it's it's so well so well deserved um erica thunder de hinook I, that, I, just, exactly. I just love that. What's the last, what's yeah. the last thing folks should know about you? At, at least during this podcast. I just love North Dakota. <laughs> like, actually, I, I I just really do. I, I truly love the state. Obviously, we share geography with extremely important things in my life as well, which I would say I love you know, MHA Nation, and there's even different words for how we describe ourselves in that way, too, but um, just major shout-out to the tribal nations and to I mean, so many different places that I've worked with to my cabinet counterparts. Too many to name. I have to say shout-out to Highway Patrol because they have done so much for me and for our tribes, by the way. We didn't even get into that. There's a lot more to say about the work that has been done between us and tribes and, and Highway Patrol. And, um, yeah, shout out to Governor and my, my mom, my brother, and my family. And you, Mike. Well, you let your mom know we're probably going to get I her on since you called her a savant. Yeah, I mean, we, that's just going to happen. And, you know, I'm going to say thanks to Governor Burgum for making the decision uh, to appoint you to to this job. He's, I think it's real fitting that a uh, Native American woman who has uh, lived on a reservation, worked on a reservation, uh, went to law school, and that you're the commissioner for the Department of Labor and Human Rights, uh, I actually think it's really fitting that you're serving all of us in that capacity. And you're doing a great job, Erica. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Dehinook.
I just love yeah. that. Day Inuk. Day Inuk. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining me. It's a privilege. We may have to I, do this again. Please. I would love to. There's so much more we can talk about. And I, I absolutely adore you and adore this podcast. That's not even just like, I actually do. I listen to this podcast. I'm a religious li- listener. So. Well, thank you. Well, my wife's going to be editing out that part where you said you adore me because that ain't okay. going to be going To your out. wife, please, please know your husband's doing a great job and he's adored. Thank you, Erica. I appreciate you so much. Likewise.